When I first got on Facebook, it was quite a few years ago. It was back in the time when the business analysts of the world said, well, you're getting a lot of users, but you're not making any money, Facebook. So what? Because there was a time when Facebook started. Some of you may know this. Maybe it's new. Facebook was just for college students. Did we know that? You had to have a college.edu email address to be on Facebook, period. And I was in that age range when Facebook got really big, so I got my .edu email address, and I made a Facebook account. And at least in those days, I would say probably half of Facebook's pur purpose was about one thing, the relationship status. Everyone would have a relationship status, and if you changed it, all of your friends would see it, because there weren't as many advertisements yet. All of your friends would see it, and you had three choices. Single, in a relationship. Do you know what the third one is? It's complicated. <laughs> and if there was someone you had a crush on who went from in a relationship to it's complicated, and people kind of perked up around campus saying, what's going on over there? It's complicated. You know, if the book of Ezra had an old school Facebook status, it would probably be, it's complicated. Because in the book of Ezra, it's a complicated situation with complex, complicated decisions needing to be made. And it was not easy to figure out a path forward. The book of Ezra isn't that long. We should the first few chapters. You could read it in an afternoon, but I'll tell you fair warning. If you wanted to read it and then be able to sit it down and go, that was nice, and then not think about it again like a Hallmark movie or something maybe, this is not the book for us to read on that afternoon. This is a book that we wrestle with, wondering what would we do, what should we do, what would they have, what did they do, what should they have done, was that right, how does that affect us today? Lots of questions can come up from the book of Ezra. But let's start with the setting, the complicated setting. We heard it as Paul read to us today, the first four verses in chapter 1. This is when King Cyrus of Persia said to fulfill the word from the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of the King Cyrus of Persia. So he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and in writing saying, thus says King Cyrus of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, in Judah. Let any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them, go to Jerusalem and Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let all survivors in whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods, with livestock, besides free will offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. Now, in the narrative lectionary the last couple of months, we've been going along mostly chronologically. And last Sunday, and the Sunday before, we were looking forward, we were kind of prophesying ahead to the Babylonian exile. Last Sunday, we were in the Babylonian exile. And maybe we're thinking, wait, why does this say of Persia? Wasn't this in Babylon? Yes, it was in Babylon. When Cyrus conquered Babylon, then he was able to tell the people to go home. And more than that, that you should rebuild the temple that was destroyed when Babylon conquered Jerusalem. Now at this point in our story, 
depending upon which historical records we give more credence to. The exile's been going on for 50 to 70 years. I lean more in the closer to 70-year camp. But either way, it was multiple generations. That's really important. Because part of the exile, why the leaders and those with the political connections were made to leave Jerusalem and to leave Judah and go to Babylon is because Babylon wanted them to assimilate into Babylonian culture. They didn't have a temple in Babylon to worship their god and to do their traditions. They were told to marry into Babylonian families. They adopted aspects of Babylonian culture and society. And this is not an, an abnormal aspect of what it means to pick up and move and live somewhere else. Think in, just in the United States. We have people who immigrate, who we call first-generation immigrants, who often have quite a bit of their culture and food and language and everything that comes with them from where they're immigrating from. And then you have the second generation, where the kids maybe keep some of that, maybe know the language, maybe not, maybe eat the food, but get more Americanized. And then by the third generation, and then the fourth generation, and a lot of the food and the language from the original country is gone, and it's more of, well, I'm just American now. I can point back to my family going back generations and generations to Germany, to Scotland. I don't speak German. I, what, what's the language in Scotland? I should know that. Is it Welsh? Eng, is it just English? Just a weird English? I don't have a good Scottish accent. I don't even know that. Americanized, right? So that was the goal. And we went through generations of a, of a subset of Jewish people living in Babylon. So think about that. Part of the goal of the exile was accomplished. And as a result of that, you then have two large groups that are returning to Jerusalem in this passage. You have the people who stayed in Jerusalem, in Judah, the whole time. Who dealt with the aftermath of the war, of rebuilding, of picking up the rubble, of all of the hardships that followed as a group. And then you have a second group, those who went to Babylon, who then returned with aspects of Babylonian culture, with different clothing, with Babylonian families, who had a drastically different experience the last 70 years. And a large percentage of this group were born in Babylon. They had never been to Jerusalem or Israel or Judah. So many of them moved back. And that takes us into chapter 3. Seven months in, the Israelites were back in their towns, and the people gathered together as one in Jerusalem. And then we have a list of names that Paul got to say. Where are you, Paul? Kudos. <laughs> I'm not going to say them just because I think it's fun if I don't have to. <laughs> right? So then they, everybody gets together. The priests get together, and they are following the traditions back to their people as one large group. They set up the altar to the temple. They offer burnt offerings morning and evening. And in this time is the festival of booths. And we have that specifically noted in here. Now, the festival of booths is a time when everyone that was able to was told to come to Jerusalem. And they would live in the streets. And they would build booths or tents, little makeshift shelters, and sleep and live in them. You may think, why? It was a, a, to remember and to kind of pay homage to the time back when their ancestors fled Egypt. 
in the time of Exodus, when they were wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, trying to get to the promised land. They live in the booth saying that our ancestors went through a time where they didn't have a home, where they didn't have a permanent place to be, and they relied on God for everything, not for deliverance, for the path forward, for literal manna in the wilderness. There was complete reliance. So in the backdrop, while they are celebrating a time of their ancestors being displaced, they are joined together again for the first time in generations because some of them were forcibly displaced. And this is all happening at the time when they say, let's start to rebuild the foundations of the temple exactly where it once stood. That's where we start in verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets, the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house had been laid. But many of the priests and Levites and head of families Old people who had seen the first house on its foundations wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. Think about the emotions that we have here, as has been referenced well with that book. We have some of the heads of families to quote scripture, old people. I didn't say it, not my words. But scripture says, the old people remembered when the temple was there. They knew what it looked like. They also remembered when they heard that God's house, the temple, was destroyed. And they saw the rubble and the destruction and know how long they've been without perhaps wondering if it would ever be rebuilt in their lives, and they are overcome with the emotion, with weeping. Next to them, you have people who never saw the old temple, but perhaps grew up right down the street, and their entire lives was a constant reminder of an empty lot, a reminder of the devastation, of the loss, that they are under foreign rule. Next to them, you have the people who were born in Babylon, who perhaps never thought they would return to Jerusalem and are looking around and seeing all of this for their first time, taking part in the temple of booths for their first time. And as you have the people gathered, you have a group of them who are openly weeping. And we're not talking Presbyterian silent tears, right? <laughs> We're talking like grief overcomes. We're talking ugly crying here, right? We're talking loud weeping. And at the same time, we have these shouts of joy. And it's so mixed together, and the sound is so overwhelming, that you might look to your neighbor who's five people down, and you see their mouths open, and you say, I don't know if they're happy or sad. I don't know if they're shouting with joy or if they are sobbing. And the sound was so loud you could hear it out in the distance. 
On the Sunday before Advent, going back a few weeks now, Ben, you've got to get another shout-out. You're, you're popular today. There you go. Ben preached from 2 Kings, the story of Josiah finding the scroll. And in that sermon, Ben spoke about what he goes to when he has a tough decision to make. What scripture passage, what theology, what faith he goes to. I called as we were talking about ahead of time like a crossroad sermon or a guiding light sermon. That's my language that I like to use for that when we were talking about it. But there's some similarities with that passage and with today. But before I get to that similarity, I'm going to tell you a secret. This can't go outside these walls, okay? Those of you online, it can't go outside wherever you're watching online from, worshiping with us. The secret is, most people who preach, and I say that knowing that I am one of those most people, or one of those people, most of us only have one or two sermons. That's kind of the truth of it. We preach different scripture passages and share different stories, but generally most of us end up at about the same place every sermon. It took me years of preaching every Sunday to get to where I was pretty confident that I had two different sermons that I could preach. And I, when I first heard this and looked around and spoke to other pastors, I go, yeah, this really is true. I, uh, I have a little bit of a... I don't know if stubborn is quite the right word. I like a challenge. So I've always had the challenge in my ministry to see how many different sermons I think I really get where I can preach. And I think I'm really close to like three, three and a half. Like I'm getting up there for me. Like I'm like, this is, I feel pretty happy about it. I'll say my goal is to hit four, maybe five at most over the next 30 years. And you're, you're looking forward to that, huh? But another way to look at it is the different sermons that we have. It's really just another way of saying, what's our guiding light scripture? What's that cross post? Whenever we get to a crossroads, what is the one thing that we revert back to? And one of my sermons, and if you think back over the last few months, you may say, yeah, you have preached that sermon quite a few times. One of my sermons is about this table. And that's the sermon that I'm preaching today. From this passage. Think back to the story. We have many different experience and moods and views, all the emotion of the people gathering around the temple as it began to be rebuilt. Think back to a few weeks ago in Thanksgiving when there were families all over our country who gathered around with many different experiences and moods and views right? But still gathered around the same table. Or the Christmas dinners that are happening this time of year with, again, many different experiences, moods, and views, but still gathering around. The communion table. The communion table is one where people with many different experiences, moods, and views can still gather around. The temple was for all of them. Whether they were weeping or shouting with joy, whether they were young or old, whether they stayed behind or were forced to leave or wherever they were born, they were bringing it all around the temple. The Thanksgiving table or Christmas dinner should be the same for everyone. 
right? The communion table is for everyone. It's for those who are weeping. It's for those who are shouting with joy. It's for those who don't know how to feel because, well, it's complicated. And maybe I feel happy and sad at the same time. And as we as a community enter into the final week of Advent, the final days approaching Christmas, as we hear stories of the inn being too full so they gather in a barn around a manger, as we hear stories of the shepherds singing, seeing the star or the angels singing, know that Christmas is for everyone. That we say Merry Christmas or maybe Happy Holidays, but we don't have to feel merry or happy to be welcome here for Christmas Eve. We don't have to be merry or happy to be able to go to God in prayer. We can be merry and happy. I'm not saying you have to be sad. The very point of this is however we are, wherever we've been, whatever our experiences are, we can bring all of that forward. Whether we are merry or distraught, if we're feeling the pain and loss of the first Christmas without a loved one, or if we're thinking maybe this year I'll get my first bicycle, we can bring all of that together. We can bring all of that to the table. We can bring all of that to the manger. It's okay on Christmas for it to feel complicated. My prayer is that even in that complication, we as a church, we as a people, we as a world, are able to gather together in peace. Amen.